Hi, it's Mark Raven here. If you like my podcast, you might be interested in my books. Uh, my first book, Lean Hospitals. My second book, Healthcare Kaizen, co-authored with Joe Schwartz. Practicing Lean, an anthology of stories from a number of authors. And my most recent book, Measures of Success. To learn more and to buy through Amazon, you can uh, support this podcast by going to leanblog.org slash Amazon. Hi, this is Mark Rabin. I'm really honored that the 32nd Annual Shingo Conference has invited me to teach a half-day workshop on topics from my most recent book, Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. The conference is April 16th and 17th in Orlando. My workshop will be Friday morning the 17th. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to leanblog.org slash Shingo 2020. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. This is episode number 96 of the podcast for August 2nd, 2010. My guest today is Pascal Dennis of the firm Lean Pathways, Inc. Pascal is a professional engineer, author, and advisor to North American firms making the Lean Leap. Pascal developed his skills on the Toyota shop floor in North America and Japan and by working with major international companies. And he's also a faculty member with the Lean Enterprise Institute. Pascal is the author of books such as Lean Production Simplified, Andy and Me, and Getting the Right Things Done. And today we're talking about his new book, which is a sequel to Andy and Me. The book is called The Remedy. So as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Lean Blog Podcast. Well, Pascal, it's great to have you finally as a guest here on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thanks for the invite. Sure. So I want to talk about your new book, The Remedy. I was wondering if you could start off by giving us the setup to the story and how it's a follow-up to a book. Many of the listeners, um, like myself, may have read a book called Andy and Me. Uh, well, uh, as you say, um, The Remedy is a sequel to uh, a book I wrote five years ago uh, called Andy and Me, and uh, it's uh, further adventures of Tom Pappas and Andy Saito, I suppose. Um, five years ago, um, they took on the uh, challenge of saving an automotive plant, New Jersey Motor Manufacturing, and since then, the plant has really thrived and prospered through lean principles, and um, the uh, 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 plant is doing extremely well. But the mother company, Taylor Motors, is in terrible shape. In fact, uh, they're bankrupt and subsisting on government handouts. So um, uh, Rachel Armstrong, who's now senior vice president, um, asks uh, Tom, who's one of her uh, best leaders and, and most original thinkers, in her view, to take on um, a bigger challenge. She asks Tom if he would become the Shusa or the uh, chief engineer or key thinker or whatever uh, term you want to use um, uh, for an entire platform, uh, an environmental car that uh, Taylor Motors uh, is launching and desperately needs to succeed because they not, not only have to, um, you know, pay off their uh, government loans and get out of bankruptcy and solve all their other problems, but they've got to make a splash in the marketplace to regain the trust of 
of their customers, all the people that uh, you know are wondering uh, uh, what's happening with Taylor Motors. Uh, are my warranties going to be honored? Um, you know, is it going to disappear entirely? Uh, tremendous uncertainty. So they have to uh, make a splash uh, with the uh, new environmental car. That's the background. And it's a book that's clearly about you know transformation challenges and culture and management styles. One of the things I appreciated was how you pointed out right away. I mean, it's, it's an important point. Uh, it was on, right on page two, this idea in the story that nobody will lose their job because of improvement work. I was wondering if you could talk about that as a, a general uh, theme and philosophy with Lean and, and how that fits in you know, maybe with a company that is going through some real difficult business challenges. Well, in order to do extraordinary things, you have to involve all of your people. And that's blindingly obvious and um, usually ignored. You know, it's, it's a very strange thing in my view. Uh, we want to motivate our people by laying off a whole bunch of them and uh, shutting down sites and offshoring work. So if we accept that, then um, we've got to make that promise up front and we've got to keep the promise. Uh, and then... If, uh, if you've got uh, good values, if you have a, a strong sense of who you are as a company and, and as individuals, you have a chance to motivate everybody and focus them on a great uh, endeavor, something remarkable. And uh, um, you have a chance to break through. You have a chance to be in the top 1% of companies. But that's only possible if you've got the trust and the uh, uh, regard and the faith of all your people. I mean, it's uh, it's transparent to me. Um, for some reason, uh, you know, it's hard it's hard for some some people to accept. You know, they think, well, you got to cut uh, uh, jobs and cut factories and uh, you know bleed the company down, and that's somehow tough management. I just think it's dumb, personally. A lot of people in the lean community have been talking about this for a very long time. This idea that, that you say is blindingly obvious. Uh, is, is there, uh, there's got to be a mental model or something that's a, a sticking point from getting people to see that that's a necessary part of a lean transformation, that commitment and that trust, or what, what would you say gets in the way in the real world? Uh, I think, uh, as you say, Mark, dysfunctional mental models get in the way. Um, and, you know, I, We've, you and I have talked about them at length, uh, uh, leaders, for example, not accepting that their role is uh, to, um, to develop capability in their people, in their machinery, in their processes, in their supply chains, um, and many other uh, dysfunctional mental models. And, and they're in, um, described in detail in the book, Getting the Right Things Done. But I think um, one thing uh, that has struck me increasingly in the past few years is a root cause of this foolish um, and incessant downsizing and bleeding down of the company's assets, a root cause of it is that we are outsourcing not just production, but also thinking. We are outsourcing our thinking, and we're doing so to uh, so-called pundits uh, that we see on TV or, uh, you know, consultants that uh, are sh- that uh, you have to offshore everything and uh, they show us complex algorithms which seem to make sense. And rather than saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all, we accept the um, conventional wisdom and we outsource our thinking. So everybody, lemming-like, follows the so-called leaders 
and then uh, you know a decade later or two decades decades later we don't know how to make things anymore you know we lose core skills like machining like found like um, you know uh, uh, core design and uh, interesting assembly and reassembly and uh, and such uh, high level skills you know we're outsourcing thinking mm-hmm. and I guess on the theme of maybe better thinking or, or lean thinking, it seems one of the main themes of uh, the book, The Remedy, is how to get flow across different business functions that, you know, the, it seems maybe the challenge for Taylor Motors is not just a narrow lean production challenge or, you know, about implementing lean tools that maybe uh, that's not enough in a lot of real world cases. So I was wondering if you could talk about that theme without giving away, uh, I guess, the end of the story. Um, if you can touch on why that's an important theme in the book. Uh, the uh, uh, One of the villains in the book is um, big company disease. And big company disease manifests in a number of ways, and most obviously, as you suggest, in um, uh, disconnect between uh, divisions, between functions, between people that normally should be working together as customers and suppliers, internal customers and suppliers. So big company disease um, causes a thick and anesthetizing fog to envelop the, uh, the company. You can't see upstream or downstream. You can't see your biggest problems. And um, lateral connection, which is how value flows, is lost. And again, this isn't um, through ill will or anything, but people wanting to do a good job will optimize what they can see because the old adage, out of sight is out of mind. If I can't see upstream or downstream, I'm going to try to make my little corner better. But, uh, uh, you know, that uh, generates the problems you're you're talking about, um, silo efficiency. You know, unit efficiency does not equal overall efficiency. So the challenge is how do we cut across complex organizations with multiple sites and multiple divisions and multiple silos and multiple countries and continents and um, create a line of sight between the customer and what they want and um, uh, what we do, you know, and connect everything. And then you can pull and flow and uh, start to um, harvest all the opportunities that Lean uh, makes available. Now, I think it's one of the points that people miss, even if you go back uh, to the machine that changed the world, that a lot of times people say, okay, you know, the, even the subtitle of the book, the story of lean production, and they think, you know, factory floor quality and factory cycle time. But even in that book, it talked about Toyota's product development cycles being uh, so much shorter than the big three. Um, what was, I mean, can you share a little bit of your experience at, at Toyota, maybe in terms of applications of what we would call lean uh, outside of the factory floor, or how some of those connections were made across different parts of the company. That's a that's a great uh, question, Mark. So, just to underline what you're saying, the uh, lean business system comprises three systems: the design, make, and sell subsystems. But most of the attention, as you say, has been on the middle one, on the make. Uh, system, you know, the uh, so-called Toyota production system, but the design and the cell uh, systems are at least as important, and, and some people say more important. So um, here's what I saw working at Toyota of the 
uh, outside the factory uh, um, connections. Um, we would regularly um, uh, connect with our uh, chief engineer or Shusa for the models we were making, the Corolla and the Solera, for example. And uh, the Shusa's job was to wrap his arms around the entire Corolla uh, or Solera platform. And that's wrap his arms around the upstream um, elements, uh, design, sales, marketing, all the way downstream to um, the distribution system right down to the dealers. And, um, you know, uh, he had a small team of people, but on a regular cadence they would visit us, you know, pre, during, and post uh, launches, whether they were major model launches or model refreshes, and he would uh, connect with us on our top 10 quality problems, our top 10 ergonomic problems, our top 10 assembly problems. And uh, they'd also go to our sister companies, uh, Numi, for example, or um, uh, Toyota Turkey, or other uh, uh, companies around the world that were making the Corolla, for instance. And thereby they would identify hotspots upstream and downstream of the um, uh, in the value stream and be able to develop great insight. For example, uh, I've no doubt the Shusa would say, look, the way we have designed the body here is generating all sorts of ergonomic problems downstream in manufacturing. Moreover, it's generating these machine problems way over there in uh, machine design. So uh, the Shusa was able to zoom out and see the entire value stream, design, make, sell, and make connections other people couldn't. And um, bottom line for us was, at the next iteration, the next model refresh, the problems we had identified were gone. We didn't have to deal with those quality problems or ergonomic problems or machine problems that we did before. So literally, we got better every day. It's continuous improvement. And that wouldn't have been possible without that Shusa function, that person who wraps their arms around the entire platform, including design, make, and sell. That's probably the most obvious one. There are a number of others, but the whole point was clearly to generate a holistic understanding and connection with the customer. But, and it might be fair to say that's a part of the big picture system and the overall business system that many organizations didn't uh, learn from if, if they were just doing production, uh, lean production, without looking at the lean business system. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, uh, you know, with the best of intentions, um, a lot of companies have sub-optimized, but it's not, uh, you know, uh, too late by any means. In fact, it makes good sense to learn the lean system first in manufacturing before you go upstream and downstream into the make and sell uh, parts of the business because uh, this is a key point. Uh, in manufacturing, waste is usually visible. Scrap waste, for example, in the auto business means a big pile of uh, scrapped out car bodies. And, you know, wise companies put them in a prominent place. So you walk by them every day and say, holy cow, did we make those? Gee, we should we gotta do something about that. By contrast, in, you know, business processes, uh, uh, scheduling, planning and scheduling, say, um, a bad schedule looks the same as a good schedule. There's no way of... Um, uh, recognizing the um, uh, uh, defect waste. Um, similarly, a forecast, a bad forecast and a good forecast look the same, you know. 
So uh, in business processes, you can't see the waste as easily. So it makes sense to start in manufacturing, but don't stop there. Go downstream into the cell and upstream into the make phases as well. Now, one thing you touch on early in the book is you know, some of the, the resistance. Uh, you start looking at applying lean outside of the factory floor. There's all sorts of um, uh, either you know, cultural challenges or, or people being afraid of turn, being turned into robots. Um, what, what are some of your experiences about ways that listeners might be able to work past that concern if they're hearing that in, let's say, you know, sales and marketing of a manufacturing company or if they're hearing that in you know, healthcare or some other service setting that's that's clearly not a factory floor? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, you're quite right. Um, as you move upstream and downstream of manufacturing, you run into um, obstacles. Uh, on the plus side, the people are really smart, and um, uh, once they learn the fundamentals and get past some of those obstacles, why um, they take the lean uh, very, very quickly and happily. Some of the obstacles uh, are as follows. Um, uh, there is um, uh, a fear, as you say, that standards are straitjackets. My job as a designer or as an engineer or as a salesperson will be devalued if there's a standard. So uh, a couple of points there. We have to apply lean fundamentals with finesse and intelligence when we get into knowledge um, and recognize that there is a high element of artistry in jobs like, um, well, um, uh, doing you know, sales or surgery or teaching um, or interviewing somebody. So there is an element of artistry. That's not to say we can't apply standards. We can, and we're very successful with them, but we have to have finesse. For example, um, in a surgery, we work with uh, the surgeons to identify the 10 critical elements. These things have got to be there in order for us to do an effective surgery. And the surgeons figure out what the content of the work is, but we trust them to make decisions on the fly. If there's a hemorrhage, you expect the surgeon to skip step three and four. And you know, that, that's, that's what you want. You don't want them robotically to follow this sequence. Similarly, um, you don't expect a teacher or professor to robotically follow an agenda. If there's a great learning opportunity, they can implement a teach-back or a group activity or case study or tell a story. And that's what makes for a great surgeon or a great interviewer or a great teacher, you know? That's so, cool. I mean, that's another, uh, that, that's a core um, obstacle. Another um, uh, obstacle to moving uh, lean outside the factory is, um, as I said, uh, waste is invisible outside the factory usually, so it's much harder to uh, see and to begin problem solving. Right. You know, a third obstacle is in many areas outside the factory, there isn't a history of Kaizen or an expectation of Kaizen in the factory. People know every year we've got to get a little better and, you know, we've got probably 20 years of experience. But that may or may not be true in your marketing shop or in your design shop or in your, you know, sales or customer service uh, area. So you've got to... Um, germinate the soil so that Kaizen uh, can take root. But as I say, the people are very good and, mm -hmm. and smart, so they usually pick it up pretty pretty quick. But again, finesse is the key. Yeah, I like the way you put that. Uh, leaving, you know, having the finesse to help explain to people the idea of flexibility and what you described it clearly uh, does not sound robotic, that 
having a, a standard plan doesn't mean you know, zero deviation from that, regardless of, of what's happening around you. And um, maybe you know, a final question just on, on that thought. Um, you know, what was your experience, you know, even in a production setting, I, I think one challenge is that a lot of people hear about lean manufacturing. They've, they've never been in a factory, and so it's kind of hard to translate um, you know, and they think, well, you know, oh, in a factory, yeah, people are robots. But I mean, it seems in a good lean factory, that's not the case. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, um, a good lean factory, or a, a lean surgery, or a lean law office, or a lean design shop, um, is a place where you riff. You know, uh, I'm a musician, so. Uh, the standards for me, uh, the sheet music or the scales, are just a foundation for um, for creativity, you know. And without the sheet music and without practicing the scales, you can't really do anything creative. All you create is noise. So the best factories um, that I've had the privilege of working at are like orchestras, you know. Like, you know, like an auto plant, uh, uh, welding, you know, stamping, welding, paint, plastics, assembly are like... You know the woodwinds, the violins, the uh, uh, the timpani, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and they're um, working together with a rhythm called tack time, and they're always getting better because tack time and all the other lean uh, concepts make problems visible. So they're riffing all the time, and it's not at all robotic. In fact, it's the opposite of robotic, and it's it, for me, it's you know one of the high uh, points in my career is being part of companies that are able to do that. You know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, timpani. I used to play in orchestras. I'm a, a percussionist, and, and you know, you, you, there's there's classical music where the the sheet music is what it is as an individual performer. Um, most conductors would not want you improvising, but the conductor has uh, a lot of uh, leeway. If you hear the same symphony performed um, you know, 10 times by 10 different symphonies, you're going to hear different tempos, you're going to hear different interpretations of that music. But then if you look at, at say, jazz, I mean, that's, that still has structure. You know, people who don't know jazz might think, oh, they're just, you know, they're being completely free form and, and completely making it up when, when most jazz compositions have a structure that you improvise within. So maybe, uh, I don't know if I'm butchering the analogy you were beginning, but different settings have a different amount of improvisation built in to the structure and, what, and, and the expectations that, that people working in that system might might have? Yeah, exactly right. And uh, the amount of improvisation or the amount of Kaizen, if you will, uh, on a given day probably depends on the nature of the industry. Um, and off the top of my head, if uh, the situations are life and death, uh, you you probably want to stick pretty close to the fundamentals. Say in a surgery, you better make sure, you know, the critical ten things are done. Um, in sales, though, it's not life or death, so you might be able to riff a little bit more. That's not to say that in the surgery, once you've completed the work, you have a debrief, you identify opportunities. It's not to say that you're not going to implement them, but in the heat of the moment, uh, you probably will uh, will be less likely to uh, to completely riff, you know. Uh, and uh, the point is that. Um, um, standards do not constrain creativity. They, they allow creativity both in the work and supporting the work. Another metaphor I, I use um, is that just imagine the Rolling Stones. You know, they, uh, you know, they're 149 years old now and they're on tour again. So 
um, how do they do what they do? Can I suggest that they are surrounded, protected, um, ported by standards? For example, um, they're doing 200 dates in a given year. I assure you there is a standard way of unloading the trailers and setting up the stage and doing the sound check and tuning the cars and keeping track of Keith, you know, and etc. Uh, now, so they're nestled and protected by standards. Now, even within the performance, they have all the stuff we talked about, the sheet music and the scales and etc. Now, they may alter their performance. You know, uh, a given song will probably be done different in Rio de Janeiro than in um, Minneapolis. You know, that, that's that's entirely right. You, different atmosphere, different air, different audience. You're likely to to, to react and, and riff or kaizen. But, but uh, standards still are the foundation of what the Rolling Stones or, you know, the Chicago Symphony does, or a great factory, or a great design shop. It's all the same. Well, there's a lot of uh, you know, great points on, you know, the subtlety and, and maybe, as you call it, uh, the finesse of the lean um, approach and the lean philosophy and how to help, you know, transform an organization. Um, a lot of that can be found in... Um, your, your earlier books, Andy and Me, Getting the Right Things Done, and uh, more so now in the new book, The Remedy. So I want to uh, thank you for joining us, and, and maybe as some closing thoughts, uh, Pascal, if you could remind people of uh, the, the full title of the book, um, different ways that they can uh, purchase the book and uh, find you online. Thanks, Mark. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, chatting and uh, working together. Uh, the book is called The Remedy, Bringing Lean Thinking Out of the Factory to Transform the Entire Organization. And um, I guess the easiest way to get it is online at um, uh, Amazon.com or at uh, BarnesandNoble.com or at BooksAmillion.com um, or any other um, uh, on-site uh, um, uh, stores. You can also get it at your local um uh, bookstore, and I uh, had a lot of fun writing the book. Uh, hopefully, it'll be uh, helpful to people. Um, and uh, I'm very much obliged to, to you for uh, for the invite, as always. Well, sure, happy to have you. And if people want to uh, find you online, um, your your general website. Well, um, uh, thanks for reminding me. As a matter of fact, we have a new website which I'm very proud of: uh, www.leanpathwaysinc. Dot com. That's www.leanpathwaysinc.com. And um, we've got all sorts of neat stuff there, all sorts of downloads and uh, educational materials and teaching aids and a bunch of other useful uh, stuff. Um, and uh, do feel free to uh, partake. And uh, for listeners, good luck with all your activities. And um, just keep going and getting a little better every day. Well, thanks for those thoughts and, and sharing uh, your time with us, uh, Pascal Dennis, our guest today. Sorry it's been so long. Hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast again. There's an awful lot we could talk about. That'd be great, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.
Hi, it's Mark Raven here. If you like my podcast, you might be interested in my books. Uh, my first book, Lean Hospitals. My second book, Healthcare Kaizen, co-authored with Joe Schwartz. Practicing Lean, an anthology of stories from a number of authors. And my most recent book, Measures of Success. To learn more and to buy through Amazon, you can uh, support this podcast by going to leanblog.org slash Amazon. Hi, this is Mark Rabin. I'm really honored that the 32nd Annual Shingo Conference has invited me to teach a half-day workshop on topics from my most recent book, Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. The conference is April 16th and 17th in Orlando. My workshop will be Friday morning the 17th. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to leanblog.org slash Shingo 2020.